our sensory input and our muscles are two huge drivers of attention that can go both ways. So if you are dysregulated in how you take in sensory information, that can disrupt your attention and focus. So if I'm overly sensitive to touch and the, you know, the steam on my sock is driving me nuts, I'm paying attention to something that's going to pull my attention and focus from elsewhere. So our ability to regulate our emotions, engage with the environment, learn, pay attention is very, very, very grounded in our sensory system. Hello, and welcome to the Minimalist Moms podcast. In today's conversation, Dr. Rebecca Jackson takes us on a journey through the fascinating, fascinating world of brain development and its profound influence on attention spans. She delves into the impact of technology on our attention and unveils powerful strategies to strengthen it. From sensory input and movement to the transformative power of meditation, in today's episode, you'll discover practical ways to enhance focus in the digital age. But before we get there, I quickly want to share a minimalist resource with you. So today's resources that I'm going to share are ways that I live a more intentional life when it comes to my health and wellness. I've actually started taking Pilates classes, which have been fabulous and I've really been enjoying. But there are a couple apps that also make health and wellness easier. One, specifically if you're into running, I love the Run With Hal app. Hal Hugden is a well-known American runner and known for his training plans. So I absolutely love this app. You can program in what days you don't want to run, what your thought-out pace would be. Just super simplistic and straightforward. So that's the Run With Hal app. I also love Strava. I love it for tracking my runs and distances. There are groups you can join, maps you can create. This is another app with some upgrades that you can purchase. However, again, I just use the basic free plan and it seems to work well for me. And then lastly, I wanted to mention AIM7. This is actually an app that was designed by a previous guest, Eric Corum. I'll be sure to link the episode in the show notes, but I've been using the app since I had him on and I've enjoyed seeing some of the data that comes through and they also have workouts available. So that's the AIM7 app. I know at one point Eric offered me a discount code. It was MINAIM7, all caps. Try it out and see if it still works. But if not, I'm sure you could always reach out to Eric and let him know that I sent you. So if you're someone that is getting back into fitness this year, and these are ones that I actually use and have stayed on my phone more than any other. All right, and with that, let's get into this conversation with Dr. Rebecca Jackson. Well, Rebecca, thanks so much for joining me today on the Minimalist Moms podcast. I'm so happy to be here. I'm happy to talk with you. You have a new book called Back on Track, A Practical Guide to Help Kids of All Ages Thrive, and it came out back in September. So with this book, are you talking more about toddlers and young children, or are we looking at the whole wide span of children when they're under our household? It's the whole wide span. If you have a brain, (laughs) the book applies to you. But really, you know, one of the things that struck me as a parent early on is there are so many books about development in utero. I mean, you can read week by week what's happening developmentally and so many great books and resources for the first couple of years. What does development look like for a six-month-old, a nine-month-old, an 18-month-old? And then it stops. And so I really wanted to create the resource that I wanted as a parent that I didn't have. And so the book is each chapter is broken into three sections of what does development look like for infants and toddlers, for elementary school age kids, and for middle school, high school, because there are still developmental milestones that we can be watching and tracking all the way through the teenage years that influence our mood and emotions, our ability to pay attention, our ability to learn. 
which impacts anxiety, attention, self-confidence, your ability to learn. Um, and, and even though it's focused on development, our adult brain is dependent on earlier development. And so it applies to adults as well. Those I always tell the adults, just read the, the chapters or the sections for, for teenagers. Yeah, absolutely. And don't researchers or studies say your brain isn't fully developed until 25? Depending on the resource and depending on the person. Um, but, you know, to look at that from another perspective, so long ago, the focus was really on early intervention. And early intervention is always important. The sooner we can close any developmental gap and change the trajectory of everything going forward, the better. But parents need to know it's never too late. Whether we're talking about adult or a child, um, a couple of studies that I'm working on right now is on adult brains. And um, it, we were just looking at the data analysis yesterday, and we're seeing in adults driving huge cognitive change in the areas of sustained attention and inhibitory control. These are adults ranging in age from 25 to 65 that we're driving cognitive change. So yes, the brain for a typical developing brain continues to develop through age 25, but that doesn't mean it's too late beyond that. It, the brain in so many ways are like muscles where you strengthen what you utilize and you can strengthen and change performance. I've noticed over the last several years, I used to be an avid movie watcher. Now I have such a difficult time watching a movie, just sitting still and being slow without hopping on my phone. Oh, that actor, where do I know him from? And then I start Googling on my phone. Oh, I wonder this, this made me think of this. And I'm on my phone the whole time. And that movie has lost my attention. And I told my husband, this is actually a problem. I'm 35 and I can't believe I have this problem because I talk about slow living and I talk about noticing and paying attention. So one of my goals this year was actually to go to the movie theater more often because I have avoided it for six years. No joke. I just felt like this is a waste of my money because I'm not actually going to be engaged. How we engage and use technology has changed drastically over the last five to 10 years. And what you're describing is exactly the end result of that. Think about growing up. If you were sitting on the couch watching TV, what did that look like? It was just you and the TV and that was it. So my family watches the Hurricanes hockey team. So if I were to sit down to watch a Canes game, we have a fire going in the fireplace, the dog's around, and I've got the television, I've got my laptop on my lap, and I've got my phone within you reach. So we don't watch things single-focused any longer. Three devices is typical. That is not uncommon. And our brain is then constantly toggling from task to task. Our brains don't actually multitask well at all. It's not multitasking, it's task switching. So I'm switching from following the puck on the hockey game to glancing down at an email, then responding to the ping on my phone because a text just came through from my daughter, and I'm constantly bouncing back and forth. But that takes a toll on our resources. I think about energy and attention as money. So if, if each morning you woke up and Diana said, here's a hundred bucks for you for the day. How are you going to spend it? And each time we're task switching, each time I'm going from email to my phone, I'm spending a dollar that's unnecessary. And so we burn through more resources and then I've got less resources left to focus on the things that I need to focus on. So now I'm wrapping up a work project after the kids and everyone's in bed and I'm exhausted and I'm having a hard time focusing. And then we also 
we, we will gravitate towards things that distract us when we're stuck mentally or when we're uncomfortable with our internal thoughts. And so again, if I'm sitting at my computer and I'm writing an article and I've gotten stuck on a thought, if I'm not careful, I automatically grab my phone just as a distraction. That's not helping me solve the problem of what I'm, of what I'm trying to write about. That's taking away the discomfort of, of feeling stuck. It's a distraction. And then, or, you know, on the flip side, let's say I'm, you know, going for a walk and I'm processing my week mentally and I'm thinking about something and I'm thinking, you know, oh gosh, I could have handled that conversation so differently. When we're uncomfortable, again, we, we grab a device as a distraction. So then we often never push through processing those moods and emotions or processing an event or staying single task focused. And I think about that with my kids all the time. What am I modeling for them? And how do I teach them to be aware of, of how they're functioning because we strengthen what we use? So if we're constantly switching from thing to thing to thing, then it's harder for me to maintain that sustained focus because I'm not exercising those pathways as frequently. Absolutely. I was wondering, I've heard before, there's no such thing as multitasking. It's just you're moving too quickly between thing to thing. And I wondered, I was like, okay, well, does that strengthen systems in my brain or is this actually harming me long term? So I feel like you did answer that a little bit, but I'm wondering, what does it look like to give us the tools to strengthen that muscle of attention? To talk about task switching, there's good and bad there. And so it is good to be able to task switch. And in fact, um, there's a really interesting study and work out of UNC Chapel Hill, where a professor there, Dr. Lin, is really looking at task switching as a predictor for understanding ADHD and the severity of ADHD. And what his work has found is that individuals that aren't good with task switching you have a higher likelihood to struggle with that if you have ADHD. So what happens in that scenario is you, so I'm doing an email, my phone pings, my attention goes there. And with ADHD, you forget to return to the task that you started. And so the task switching challenge with ADHD is not returning to finish what you started. So one of the things that then as you strengthen and improve a mature brain function so that you've got better inhibitory control so that I don't react to the ding every time I hear it, um, is, is then you're staying more single task focused. Or if you do go off task, you're more likely to return to the task to finish it. So task switching in and of itself isn't bad. It's something we, you know, if we're good at doing it, we are more productive and getting things done and completed in the day, but it's being mindful of when you're doing it and how you're doing it. Are you, if, if you're task switching while you're working on something that has a high cognitive demand. So if you need to be focused, if you're a student and you're studying biology, if you're an adult and you're doing something focused at work, task switching is going to take away from what you're doing. So you should complete the article, complete the studying, and then shift to the, to the thing the alert on your phone. So that way you're not draining the resources that you need to complete the task. So task switching is good and necessary, but it's being mindful and being able to catch yourself of, you know what, I need to turn the alert on my phone off. So as I'm working, I'm not even tempted and it's pulling my attention just by hearing that ding, regardless of how great your inhibitory control is. So when it comes to improving that, 
one of the things that we tend to do in society is we tend to have this, this thought that if I practice the thing that I'm deficient in, I'm going to get better. So if I practice task switching, I'm going to get better at task switching. And I really like to look at things from the opposite perspective is if development is on track, if the brain is doing what it's supposed to do, you're going to be better at doing that thing. And, you know, think about a student struggling in school. If a student is struggling with reading comprehension, I see this all the time, taking the student into a quieter environment and using the same curriculum doesn't always solve the problem. So practicing the thing that you're struggling in doesn't always solve it. It's going back to say, why was that a struggle in the first place? So as the brain matures and develops, it should be getting better at maintaining attention for longer, having better inhibitory control so that you are better at saying, I hear the ding, but I'm not gonna change what I'm doing. And so for me, it's always going back to strengthening that underlying foundation because the idea of, if I've got a 10-year-old that has a developmental gap, he might really be functioning like a seven-year-old. So if I'm asking a seven-year-old to perform at a level of a fifth grader, that's not setting him up for success. If I can close that developmental gap, now I teach that fifth grader and it's going to be more effective. For me, when I'm editing the podcast or working on something for photography. Sometimes I'll set a timer and do, I can't think of what it's called. It's not Tabata, that's for fitness. But there's a system where you set a timer and then you pause and take a break and then you set a timer and and take a break. So that's been helpful to me. But also, even if I'm watching something, sometimes I'll have a notepad next to me and write it down and say, you don't have to address this right now. You can just kind of have a brain dump going on Notice that quickly, write it down, and you don't have to go down rabbit holes that kind of take you more off focus. So I think for me, that's how I've helped myself strengthen that muscle to get better attention span. Uh, I'm also curious to know your thoughts about meditation. That's really what we're doing. We're trying to get our thoughts back together and more attentive. And I think that that has helped me as well. First of all, those are two absolutely fantastic strategies that you're using to optimize your ability to pay attention. So a couple things that we know is our sensory input and our muscles are two huge drivers of attention that can go both ways. So if you are dysregulated in how you take in sensory information, that can disrupt your attention and focus. So if I'm overly sensitive to touch and the, you know, the steam on my sock is driving me nuts. I'm paying attention to something that's going to pull my attention and focus from elsewhere. So our ability to regulate our emotions, engage with the environment, learn, pay attention is very, very, very grounded in our sensory system. Um, And then the second piece is muscles and movement. The old adage from teachers of sit up to pay attention is true. When we engage that particular area of of our our spine and what that does with the brain is it increases your level of alertness to help you pay attention. It's why when we go to sleep at night, when we lay down our brain, there's the same amount of sensory information in your environment when you're awake versus when you're asleep. But when you're laying down and you're not engaging your muscles, that signals your brain, you can close the gate to not be processing all of that sensory information. So it's why one of the first things we do when we wake up is we stretch. So we start to stretch and that starts to open like a garage door. It starts to open up signaling, okay, start to take in that sensory information. I hear the dog barking outside. I see the sun shining. So I know it's going to be a nice day. So when you take a break and you do some movement, 
or you engage your core muscles or you spike your heart rate, those are ways to then re-engage the brain, to double back down on your ability to pay attention. And so we do have these natural attention cycles. So depending on the, the resource that you look at, there's um, you know one theory of thinking that says you've got one 90-minute chunk of time a day and that's like your solid gold and so um and for me that that 90 minute best focus range is is kind of late morning i've already exercised i've you know i've got fuel from what i ate for breakfast and i'm in the zone and i can knock out so many good productive things there and if you go beyond that natural window of focus then you're going to have you're going to lose that energy you're going to lose so it's going to things are going to become more difficult for you but then you can earn yourself another chunk of focus by fueling by exercising and now that that chunk might be a 45 minute window but that's with optimal development so if we have a child or an adult that is has any developmental gaps, that's going to shorten that window. But then there's also times in life, if we're experiencing pain, if we're experiencing stress or anxiety or facing a time of change in life, those are all things that are going to chip away at our ability to maximize those windows of focus. Um, and then on the meditation piece, that's been such a fascinating area to watch over the last two decades where, you know, meditation was thought of as this like woohoo, hippy dippy, you know, a lot of people would roll their eyes at it. And the amount of research, amazing, great scientific research to support the efficacy of meditation is enormous. And it, you know, I love the thought of, of starting just super simple mindful meditation with kids at a young age to build that self-awareness, to be able to identify you know what, I'm having a hard time paying attention right now, so what can I do about it? So to be able to connect how I feel with how I'm functioning can give us directional guidance. So if I can't focus right now, that tells me information that can say, okay, so what do I need to do to help me get into the focus range that I need to do to be able to do my math homework or to write this essay? And um, so I meditation is, is absolutely wonderful. And it, it took me a long time to understand I was resistant to it at first, where it took me a long time of, I have a hard time quieting my, my body and my thoughts. I want to go, 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 go. And to, to realize not all forms of meditation is about blank mind. It's being aware of where your mind's going and go with it. And, and so there's, you can find the form of meditation that resonates and works for you. And you are then strengthening what you utilize. So strengthening that self-awareness, that ability to stay quiet and, and stay tuned in. Um, so, so many wonderful, wonderful benefits for meditation. Yeah. I just was doing, gosh, Headspace. It was the Headspace app several years ago. My husband and I would put ourselves to sleep listening to it. And the man that was taking us through the meditation, he basically just said, when you start to notice your thoughts drifting from just focusing on your body, come back. You strengthen that muscle as you continue to do it more often. It's just the act of sitting with your thoughts. Meditation Sorry, go ahead. at this point is widely accepted in neuroscience. I mean, it is, it is restful and rejuvenating. <laughs> it is good for focus. It is good for mental health. I mean, there is, there is not a downside to meditation other than the time and discipline to, to build it, to work it into your day. I'm curious, what prompted you to write this? Because I feel like a lot of researchers noticed a shift in our children's attention after the pandemic. So was that a motivating factor for you writing this book? 
100%. Um, I've been with Brain Balance for 15 years, and the number of phone calls I got during the pandemic from friends, families, neighbors, people through Brain Balance, people in my personal life, it went off the charts. Every parent that I knew was worried about their child and seeing changes. And adults, we were all struggling. I mean, there's higher rates of ADHD, anxiety, depression, suicide, suicide ideation, larger academic achievement gaps that are all still present since the pandemic. And for me, it was, you know, I just started by answering people's questions and I was doing a lot of guest media spots during this time. So why are we seeing this? What do we do about it? And so I was writing about this topic and talking about this topic and lecturing about this topic over and over and over again. And what really finally struck me is all the headlines were so negative. It was kids are struggling, adults are struggling. And I kept waiting for the action plan. So we know there's a problem, but what are we going to do about it? And I kept waiting and waiting and waiting, and I didn't see it. And I don't, I certainly do not believe that I have all the answers, but the conversation wasn't happening. And so I finally felt like I need to wade in there and try to start a conversation or contribute to a conversation in a louder way to hope that others join. Because I, we need to do better in supporting mental health for kids and adults. We need to do better in setting our kids up for yeah. success. And there were lessons to be learned from the pandemic that we need to apply going forward. And what I saw starkly, I mean, you'll hear me talk about sensory input a lot. Our sensory input changed when we stopped leaving the house. And for our kids where they're going through rapid phases of development, this had a major impact. We learn through our senses and we cut off sensory experiences for one, two, three years, depending on where you lived and how you functioned for the developing brain and for the adult brain. So your sensory experience in your own home is nearly identical every single day. You know, if you're walking through your house barefoot, your carpet and your hardwood floors feel the same, except for the occasional Lego that you step on. Your house smells the same every day. You tend to cook the same foods. You burn the same candles. Your sights <laughs> stay the same in the house. The sounds stay the same of the barking dog and the ringing doorbell. And so we stopped bringing our kids to Target in the grocery store. If you were a parent of an infant during 2020, 2021, kids weren't leaving the house. So we had these developing infants that we just cut off all their sensory exposure, which impacted development and learning. And we were seeing it in brain imaging in babies as young as six months old that were born during the pandemic, where there were structural differences. We were seeing it fast forward impacting fine motor development, gross motor development. We are still seeing it in kids and social emotional development. We have kids and we haven't changed our expectations. Kids their bodies are the same age, their age is the same age, but we've got gaps now in social emotional development, but yet we haven't changed our expectations. Manage your homework, get things turned in, but now you're turning things in online rather than in person. So we have high executive function demands and high emotional regulation expectations, but our kids have bigger gaps. And while hopefully we will never live yeah. through another pandemic, all of our lives face times of stress, of change and all of that chips away at our foundational abilities to optimize mm. performance. So understanding the importance of varied sensory mm -hmm. exposure, of human interaction, of physical activity, of monitoring screen time. Teenagers screen time more than doubled during the pandemic. 
17 hours a day was not unusual of screen time, which cut into sleep, it cut into learning, it cut into social interaction, it cut into physical, all the drivers of development. And, and those numbers haven't dropped back down to pre-pandemic time. So we need to learn from that time to do better going forward. So yeah. that was a really long answer to say, yes, absolutely. What I was seeing and experiencing during the pandemic, the questions that I was getting from the media, from neighbors, it, the information needed to get out there. Um, and it still needs to get out there. Parents need to know, adults need to know, mm-hmm. don't feel stuck. <laughs> There's a path forward. If medication and counseling hasn't done the trick for you, if it does, mm-hmm. that is wonderful, but know there are other options to impact mental health, to impact learning, to impact social emotional regulation. The brain is amazing. It's powerful. You can exercise and strengthen it to have a very real effect. Yeah. We absolutely created some bad habits during the pandemic, both us and our children, I think. And I I feel like I can say that as a generalization to most people, just because we didn't have other choices necessarily. But since the brain is the core of everything that we do, how would you encourage parents to help their kids in more, I guess, natural ways? I just don't want to offend people that use medication for these things, but if there are alternative ways to help our children, how would you encourage them? Yeah. And I'm hundred percent with you. I never want a parent to feel guilt or shame. Every parent does what they need to do in that moment. And I don't, I don't know your life. So I don't know what the right thing for you and your family is. That's between you and your physician. Um, but when it comes to optimizing attention, it's about optimizing development. A two-year-old doesn't have a long attention span. And by six years old in kindergarten, they should be able to sit for 20 minutes. Development naturally improves attention and focus. So if you are seeing challenges with attention and focus, that is a red flag for developmental gaps. So to then improve that, and and here's the beauty of it. It's going to sound so simplistic in what I'm going to say, but it's going back to the basics. Kids need to run and play and move and have sensory exposure that's varied and frequent. That is what grows and develops the brain. So I love nothing more than a barefoot kid running around outside in the mud, in the dirt, in the grass, and then hose them down before they come inside. The simple things is what drives and develops the brain. And and I also don't want to vilify technology. There's so many great things, but it is finding a balance with that because, and I've got a 14 and a 16 year old. So it is a delicate balance is putting it lightly. It is not easy. And there are times when I am tired and I just don't want to go there. <laughs> and there's time, you know, there's a time and a place, but it's being again, aware and mindful for every minute. Our kids and us as adults are face down in our screen on our phone, that's a minute that our kids aren't being physically active. It's a minute that they're not being creative. And that's what grows and builds and develops the brain. And so if we're frustrated with our child's ability to pay attention and we can't get through math homework and it's a constant redirection and it's just frustrating, allowing a balance that is tipped in a really big way towards many, 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 many hours on technology is working against you. It is not helping to tip those scales. Physical activity, sensory exposure, personal interaction, and the way the brain engages and lights up with personal interaction 
is not the same through technology. So playing a video game while you're logged in at the same time with a friend is not lighting the same networks and pathways in the brain as if you're sitting in the same room doing something together. And I, you know, I understand that that maybe that's better than than nothing. But again, it, it's being aware and being mindful of the what and the why. And it's we have several different types of attention, but we we call it all attention. The attention that we're using when we're playing a video game or scrolling TikTok is not the same type of attention we use when we're doing math or work for work. When you're scrolling TikTok and it's a funny video, you get a dopamine hit. And that dopamine hit gives you a burst of energy, a burst of feeling good. It doesn't last long, so then your brain craves more of it. So then you hyper-focus for the next chunk of time till you get that next dopamine hit. So one of the things that parents say to me all the time is, is why can my child play two hours of video games, but they can't do 15 minutes of math? I just think they, they only like to do what they like to do. And if they don't like it, they're not trying. You are comparing apples to oranges. That, those are not the same systems. Sustained attention, there's no dopamine hit. There's nothing to have your brain double down to want to keep paying attention. If we're constantly doing attention that's giving us constant dopamine hits, like a video game, or like TikTok or YouTube, where you're, it's just constantly feeding you something new, different that your brain loves, you are strengthening the reward-driven pathways that need constant interaction. And the video gamers and the, the TikTok developers, they know this. They know how to engage your brain so you, before you know it, it's been hours. And what happens is when we're in that hyper focus where we're doubling down to get that next burst of feel good, funny video entertainment, we lose sense of time. We are hyper engaged. And so that's why it's so easy to look up and be like, oh, I meant to go to bed at 11 and now it's 1230. Where did that time go? And that is also a really high cost, high demand type of attention. You are hyper focused. So this is why as parents, you get negative, whiny, poor behavior after your child or teen has spent a lot of time in that. They have burned resources and a tired brain is a negative brain. So they get off two hours of gaming and they're exhausted. So they're not melting down because you told them to turn it, turn it off. They're melting down because they have lost all control. They are exhausted and now you're asking them to keep it together. So as a parent, I try to always step, take a step back and say, how do I set my child up for success? Because if I'm going to yell at them for poor behavior after I allowed two hours of gaming, I, I created that scenario. And if you don't know, you don't know. But if you know now, then that can empower you to make different choices, to say, absolutely, you've got all your homework done. You can go ahead and, and game for a little while. I'm going to turn a timer on. And at 30 minutes, at 45 minutes, we're done. Then we're going to do something physical afterwards to re-engage the brain for attention and emotional regulation so that I'm setting my whole family environment up for success and in, in finding that balance. Absolutely. I want to wrap this up, but I did think of one last question that I think would be helpful to parents listening. I think a lot of us have maybe, again, created some bad habits with our kids and screen time, and maybe we never intended to do that. So if we're wanting to pull our kids out of those behaviors, so for example, if we do allow our kid two hours on the iPad or on the Switch or on video games a day, and we're wanting to maybe cut that in half, where do we start? Would you suggest cutting in half? Do we slowly pull it away? Do we completely get rid of it? Do we give it a couple of days? What are your thoughts? 
you know, it, it's a different answer for each child and family. It depends on your scenario. But, you know, think about nutrition. If you are wanting to make a major change in your life, to me, it's easier to make small, sustainable changes that you can sustain over time than to go all in cold turkey. And then you're like, oh, there's no way I can eat like this forever. Forget it. I'm out. So for me, small, sustainable changes is a great way. And so we are creatures of habit. And so changing habits is hard and uncomfortable for all of us. And so a great strategy or approach is just first by being aware is if you start tracking it and and be aware in yourself, you're going to start to notice, oh gosh, you know, there is an extra hour in there that's completely unnecessary. I'm going to work to change my habits around bedtime. So I'm not scrolling my phone aimlessly before bed. So I love a couple things. I love small, sustainable changes. I love approaching it as a family. This is not about pointing the finger. This is not about feeling guilty as a parent. And, and I've had this conversation with my kids where I've said, Hey, I'm changing the rules. I'm a parent. I get to do that. As I learn more information, it's going to inform our decisions of how we function. So as a family, we're going to work to minimize screen time. And when I look at how we use screens and devices, I see we're spending a lot of time here. Let's work to cut that back. Now, my kids are 14 and 16, and so that conversation is different than with a four and six-year-old. But, you know, looking at being mindful of that, where can you easily do a swap out of, you know what, rather than handing them the tablet Can we take 10 minutes and sit down and read a book together or play a game together? So go into it with a plan. My goal is to reduce this by 25%. Here's where we're going to reduce it of maybe we're not giving them the tablet in the car. Maybe we're not giving them the tablet in the grocery store. And here's what we're going to replace it with. So if you don't have a solid plan, it's going to be much harder to do. And you've got to be on the same page, the whole family. So if you've got this great plan and your husband's like, forget it, this is working well. Why would I change anything? It's not going to be successful because that monitoring and staying on top of things is not easy. And so it's got to be consistent. I think one of the issues my husband and I were running into was that the screen time was only happening when one of us was around. And so that is a bit of a break for a parent. Even if you're cleaning, it's just like, okay, I'm not on right now, but it felt unfair because, okay, only Diane gets this time and a break. And I'm on as a parent when I come home from my work day and you're telling me that they can't have screens anymore. And so I think we ended up coming up with a little bit of a balance, any type of compromise you can do as spouses, because we all are stressed out and we do like those little bit of screen time breaks, but I think giving each other some to utilize some of that time where you each get a break has been helpful for us. Compromising. That is so real and honest. And and again, that was a winning strategy for you. And I'll also tell you, like any change, it's hard. And so when you first pull technology away from kids when they're or when you first start to pull back, it's uncomfortable for them. They're used to engaging in that and it's easy. They can sit back and they're entertained. There is a painful transition period when they don't know what to do with themselves and they're whiny. And you know, my most hated saying as a kid is, you know, I'm bored but they push through it when they're bored for a little while creativity stems from boredom and so that first little bit they don't know what to do with themselves but then guess what they develop new habits and new patterns and it's different for every child but maybe they start to realize guess what i really love coloring and i can sit here and color for a really long time because i really love it or i really love you know legos or play-doh or going on the trampoline and jumping in the backyard with the dog it is finding the thing for your child 
that can replace that. And it's, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be perfect. It's going to take trial and error and what works for one child isn't going to work for another, but it's like you said, it's being on the same page with your spouse and finding that balance and plan. Yes, absolutely. Well, your book goes even deeper than the things that we talked about today. We barely scratched the surface. So I definitely want to direct people to pick up a copy, but where else can they find you online uh, if they want to do so? Sure. Um, You can always find a lot more information at brainbalance.com. We've got over 70 locations all across the country. We also have an at-home program. So we work with families from all over the world uh, with both kids and adults. It's an incredible program that I'm just so proud to be a part of and so proud of the research that that we've done there. You can find me on Instagram at Dr. Rebecca Jackson um, or on LinkedIn. And I just love talking about the brain and brain health and empowering people to know what they can do to, to support themselves and their kids. As we wrap things up here, I'm going to ask you the two questions I ask every guest. And the first one is, what's been a beneficial resource in your life that you want to share with the listeners? One of my favorite books is called Spark. Um, and it's just, it's a great book for parents and educators. And it talks about the importance of movement and how that impacts attention and memory. So it's really focused on kids and learning. But um, Spark by John Rady is just a book that I love. And I've recommended it to so many parents over the years. Awesome. I'll definitely include that in the show notes. And then the last question I have for you, and I'll let you go, is what is something that you can't stop talking about? And I'm not going to let you say the brain. (laughs) Oh, that's exactly what I was going to say. I was going to say brain health is mental health. Now I'm stumped. That was my answer that I had. I'll tell you mine. Mine is Pilates. I've just started recently taking Pilates and I feel like it's changing my life. So I can't stop talking about it. I absolutely love Pilates and Pilates for me years ago because it had such an impact on me. I started working it into my chiropractic practice. I was a chiropractor originally for a long time and Pilates had such an impact for me that I worked it into my practice because it it allowed me to do it during the day. So it was like built into my work day in order for for me to make sure that I had time to do it. So, you know, I get obsessive about Pilates and spin class. Uh, and I, you know, for a spin class, it's just that rush of endorphins for me. And, and if you ever saw me in a spin class, I, I spend half the class with my eyes closed. It is, I love a dark room, loud music, my eyes closed. It's just in that zone of, of just getting a burst of endorphins. And it's just a moment where my mind is quiet and my body's going. <laughs> that just is so good for my mental health, brain health and energy. It seems like closing your eyes, like you talked about earlier, if we close our eyes, we're kind of taking away some of that sensory that's distracting so we can really focus on what we're doing. Sometimes in conversation with people, I'll close my eyes. They probably think I'm incredibly strange. But if I'm really trying to focus on what I'm saying, I'll just close my eyes and kind of gather my thoughts again. So is there anything to be said about that or am I just weird? There, no, no, not at all. That's exactly, you You just reduce sensory input. So what that tells me is you probably process auditory information more efficiently than you do visual information. Okay. So you're blocking out something that might be disruptive or distracting. So then you're going to rely on your faster, more accurate sense. Oh. Um, so you're, you're naturally accommodating for your strength. So then my recommendation to you would be to do some visual processing exercise and activities to speed that up. So you don't need to do that. But our eyes are such a powerful director of our attention. And so 
what we look at is what we're paying attention to. So a, a sign, a red flag for concerns there is the child that as you're in conversation, every time there's movement, your eyes are constantly going to the movement. It's like that movie squirrel. Um, and that's really disruptive in the classroom. The classroom is constant movement. And so if your eyes are constantly going to movement, it's going to be really disruptive uh, for attention and focus. Okay. Again, reading your book will give some tips on how to deal with some of those in the classroom experiences that we can help our children move through and even helping our teachers move through. So Rebecca, I appreciate you joining me today. This was awesome. I appreciate it. It was so fun to be here. Thank you. Great. What did you think of the episode? I hope you enjoyed the conversation. To learn more about today's guest, including links, resources related to everything discussed today, visit the episode page at minimalistmomspodcast.com, where you can find the entire podcast archive, as well as my book, Minimalist Moms Living and Parenting with Simplicity, or other ways to connect or work with me online. If you'd like to support the podcast, the easiest and most impactful thing you can do is subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and leave a rating or review of your favorite episode. Lastly, sharing the show or your favorite episode with friends on social media is very helpful and will encourage others on their journey to think more and do with less.